Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path in Asia. Before I get started with today's episode, I'd just like to let you guys know that I do have a career coaching program. So if you're feeling unfulfilled and unhappy at your corporate job, but not sure what else you'd want to do, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore or via LinkedIn. I'd love to see how I can help. And for those of you who maybe aren't so sure about what you want to do, I am sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion. It's a framework that's helped me and my clients in finance, tech, law, consulting, and more figure out what their dream job really is. Want it? Check out the show notes to today's episode. All right, let's get into today's episode. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Edwards, who started her career as a marketing director at Krispy Kreme in Australia, but eventually pivoted and built the popular digital lifestyle magazine, Honeycombers, which has over a million readers each month. How amazing is that? So how did Chris pivot from marketing into building her own business and media? I'll hand over to Chris now to share her story. Welcome, Chris. It's so lovely to have you on the podcast. So excited to, oh. to spend some time talking to you today. Oh, thanks, Jen. So happy to be here. And you're out in Australia looking nice and warm over there, uh, nice and cozy over there while I'm here in, in sunny Singapore. Um, but yeah, so I thought I'd just start off with just getting to know you a little bit better, get our um, listeners to know you a little bit better. So kind of rewinding it back, you know, all the way back to the beginning of your career. I know that you started off in marketing at Krispy Kreme, but maybe even before that, like how did you decide that marketing was the path you wanted to go on? Oh, um, good question. I made that decision in high school and I think because one of my best friends was doing it and I was like yeah that sounds great but I suppose my family had their own business and so I was always surrounded by I suppose an entrepreneurial kind of vibe uh, and yeah I felt like studying commerce just made perfect sense um, and marketing seemed like the most fun element of commerce so yeah <laughs> got it. Got it. And so, you know, after you graduated from school, you were like looking at marketing jobs. How did you end up at Krispy Kreme? Yeah. So I graduated from school. I went and did some um, marketing roles and then I traveled a bit. I, mo I moved to the UK for a bit. Um, I had a couple of years over there and I came home and I actually got a job working for Deli France. I'm not sure if you remember Deli France, but it mm -hmm. was like a, a bakery chain. And so I got a job as their marketing manager. And uh, then my boss at Deli France got headhunted to join Krispy Kreme before they launched. And she kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you want to kind of come across and, you know, join the team at, at Krispy Kreme? I was kind of completely out of my depth. I was with not a lot of experience, but I kind of went, sure, I'll kind of give it a go. So you kind of started off in Delhi, France, your boss moved. And so you decided to go along with, with your boss, but was food like F&B, like something that you were deliberate about or kind of just happened into it? No, it just kind of happened. Um, I'm I'm not a massive foodie. I mean, um, and I don't have a sweet tooth. And I think that was kind of a blessing in disguise because 
the marketing strategy at Krispy Kreme was basically sampling. So I was just known as with my friends as the lady with the donuts. So my job was literally just to distribute donuts to influencers and radio DJs and, you know, like, I, yeah, we did a lot of work in PR, but we also, I had this um, Chrysler car that was all kind of decaled out like a, a 1950s donut man. And I had a, t- a team that would drive around and deliver donuts to people. So I'd, I'd be constantly going to my friends, uh, you guys know the park? Okay, I've got some donuts coming down. And literally there'd be like, you know, 60 dozen donuts at the park. So, yeah, that was, yeah, the That's donut amazing. lady for a little while. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you were everyone's best friend at that point. Yeah, it's really funny actually because just the other day someone was like, oh, my God, I remember the you from the donut days. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was me. <laughs> but, yes, yes, yeah, it was um, it was a really interesting role actually because we borrowed the, the marketing strategy from the U.S. company. Like they kind of told us what worked in the U.S. And Krispy Kreme was actually really well known for its guerrilla marketing, I suppose. And I. I was like 23 or 24 at the time. So I was pretty young and I, you know, I joined as kind of a very junior marketing manager with not much experience and they just kept promoting me. And I I was just reporting to this guy who owned the company. He bought the franchise out to Australia and he was just a really great guy who had a lot of patience, but we also we just gelled. We just got along well. And um, yeah, so he was a really great early mentor for me. Ah, that's amazing. Um, mm. And I know that you then actually switched your career quite a little bit and you moved into publishing as, you know, the next state, the next step in your career. Maybe walk us through, you know, what, what was the thinking behind that? Yeah. So I was um, pretty much like kind of I don't know if you've heard the expression with golden handcuffs. Like I was paid really well for a 24, 25-year-old and I wasn't really being that challenged with the role. So I'd been in the role at Krispy Kreme for maybe maybe three years, not not very long, but it was kind of like it wasn't setting my light on fire is the expression. Um, so I was a little bit bored and, and, and kind of, you know, I actually started doing a, an MBA at the time just to try and find a way to kind of, be more challenged and anyway so then my husband and I we I just got married at the same time um he his company said we're opening an office in Singapore and if you'd like to move to Singapore if you pay your own way then we're happy for you to go to Singapore and work for the company up there and we were like okay well this will be an adventure and kind of mix things up and yeah so I arrived to Singapore as kind of a fairly overpaid marketing director and yeah I had I had a lot of trouble getting work I was competing with the local market and all the businesses really wanted a local Singaporean they didn't want um, a young Aussie girl who had very high salary expectations so I actually applied for a job as a general manager at it was a company called Asia City Publishing and they published HK Magazine as well as SG Magazine and the role was a general manager at their agency called Splash, where I was responsible for custom uh, magazines for clients. So that's kind of how I ended up in publishing. I guess, like, how did you pick publishing? Like, did you try out other industries, tried to look for jobs? There? No, 
No, it really, it really picked me and I actually still have the job ad that was published for the role and the ad spoke a lot about personal attributes as opposed to experience. I, I've still got the job ad because it, it describes what I thought I was at the time, which was, you know, I suppose I, I was fairly confident and I um, had experience leading a team and I had a really good grasp of marketing, but not so much publishing. So I had zero experience in publishing. But um, yeah, it, it really, the job ad really spoke to what I could deliver. Really, I suppose more of my personality than uh, my actual experience. But yeah, Interesting. that's how I ended up in publishing. That's, that's so yeah. cool. I feel like sometimes careers are really more happenstance and like you just don't know where your career could potentially lead you like I don't think if you had stayed in Australia you might have gone down this path of of publishing so that that's really awesome that 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 kind of just happened (laughs) in in your career because I think so many of us try to plan out years in our career we're like oh yeah like in five years time I'm going to be here 10 years time I'm going to be that and you know sometimes when I talk to really successful entrepreneurs or even successful people in my life, you realize, oh, actually a lot of these things just kind of happened. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't so much planning. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think also you tend to make things happen because you're like, you know, because I wasn't being challenged and I wasn't being excited and, it, you know, I didn't like I whilst I really liked my job at Krispy Kreme it wasn't enough so I was con- I was searching for something that was more mm. um and and probably even a bit more uncomfortable you know like I think I was just too comfortable like the challenge wasn't there so I think um yeah I I, I absolutely believe that you've got to kind of be open and receptive to um these things coming from from any angle you know these opportunities yeah. And so what were you doing at the publishing company? So you were a general manager, but what does that really entail? So um, I had a team of three designers and three um, account managers that were managing client um, jobs. And then there was two other people in production. But basically my role was to um, help clients produce magazines so we um, worked with them to kind of come up with a title and come up with a pagination and then um, write the content so we had that that was the other team we had I think three writers Um, and then when we put the the designs together and we worked we actually worked with uh, a media rep team who would go out and get the ads for the magazine so it was kind of like a it was a self-funded marketing strategy for the clients that were producing the magazines. Um, and, yeah, so my role was to kind of manage the teams in delivering the product but also helping the clients come, like, to a, a point that they were happy with with um, the design and layout and the masthead and, yeah, pagination. So oh, I think, yeah. yeah. So you were there for a couple of years? No, I was there for six months. It was a really, really short stint. Um, It was super challenging environment for me. And um, yeah, I was there and um, actually friends from Australia approached me and said, we're starting a new business. Um, Would you like to come and join me in this new business? And I was like, yes, please. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, it was a, it was a, 
was a very challenging role. It was very demanding. It was very uh, financially driven. So I was very much responsible for the P&L, which was fine, but, you know, I, I wasn't well supported in the role. So it was super challenging. And interestingly, you know, 10 years later, my boss from the company um, and I caught up and he actually just apologised to me for, um, yeah, he said to me, uh, you might not have realised this, but um, the, we weren't unanimous with hiring you and the person you reported to was one who did not want you to take the job. So that's why you had such a tough time. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> um, really tough. And he, yeah, it was really interesting because he's like, obviously it hasn't hindered you at all and, and you've been successful in what you've done, but I just wanted to apologise that, you know, it wasn't easy for you in that role. And I was like, Oh, thank you. You know, like it was so nice. So you didn't have to do that, but um, yeah, it it kind of made everything make sense. So yeah, so I left um after a very short stint, six months. But without that six months, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do what I'm doing today. So it was a very tough six months, but I'm so grateful I had that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so t- tell us more about these friends who came and asked you if you wanted to start a business with them. These were friends that I had met when I was at Krispy Kreme and they were web developers. So they were they were actually, I think they were nephews of the owners of Krispy Kreme. And yeah, so when I was at Krispy Kreme, we engaged them to do the website for Krispy Kreme and then they set up a business creating websites that they were going to monetize, so editorial websites that they were going to monetize through advertising or, or some other kind of forms of, of revenue streams. Um, and so they had already created the websites. They'd created one called the Aboriginal Art Directory and another one called My Medical Career. And they kind of came to me and said, would you help us with the marketing and, and really sales of these websites, so media sales? And I was like, sure. So I actually spent a fair bit of time getting to know the Aboriginal art market and I travelled down to Darwin and went to the uh, Darwin Festival where there's a, there's a lot of um, Indigenous art centres and, um, yeah, got to, got to meet with some of these gallery owners as well. So I was doing that and while, when I was with them doing that, um, my husband actually saw a publication in New York that uh, kind of exploded overnight and it was called Daily Candy. And it was a daily email and website of really cool things to do in New York. And he kind of said, this is what Singapore needs. Uh, and that's kind of where the idea for Honeycombers came about. And so I said to these guys, how about we do Honeycombers as well? And so they built it all and we created Honeycombers and launched it. And then I think I think it was one month after we launched, they both kind of came to me and said, we um, want to kind of do something else. One of them was, wanted to go and study Chinese medicine and the other guy wanted to go into management consulting. So he said, we're kind of thinking we'll disband the company and we'll take two websites and uh, you can take Honeycombers. And I was like, okay, all right. Well, Wait, this, is so, fair. this is so cool. So um, what made you say yes to them? Aside from, you know, the... The job was a bit challenging and, you know, maybe you wanted to change. Was there something like, I guess, like what was the thinking around that? I really, so I joined them in an equity capacity. So I wasn't going to be an employee. I was going to be a business partner. And they, 
really smart people that I admired and I loved the fact that they were just trying new things and doing things that no one else was doing and I just saw the potential of learning a lot but I also loved the idea of not being an employee like I think I had this entrepreneurial itch from a very long time I I think you know I think growing up around parents that always had their own business and yeah I mean I I had I did start my first business I think when I was 14 and I used to get plastic headbands and cover them with ribbons and glue them on and sell them in a shop in the in the little town so I, I always had this sense that I I've always wanted to have my own business I just didn't know what it was going to be in and the only reason I was working is because I hadn't uh, working for someone else was I hadn't had that light bulb moment and I hadn't I hadn't got that inspiration of what I was going to do mm-hmm. so um yeah, so the, the opportunity to go and work and be um, an owner in a business was really, I, I, you know, they could have been doing anything. I would have been like, yeah, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Got it, got it. Okay. And so then they decided to move on and they took their websites with them, but you at that point had already built Honeycombers. I guess how far along was Honeycombers at that point when they when they moved on? Oh, it was really in its infancy. It might have been three or four months in. Like it was definitely in the first year. Those business partners I had weren't based in Singapore. So they weren't really um, that connected or emotionally attached to honeycombers. Whereas for me, I was writing all the content and, you know, it was my, it was my baby. So, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting because, um, yeah, they basically just said, here's the trade. We'll take these sites. You take honeycombers. Um, and happy days and I was like okay sure and did the business then disband like in terms of like the equity they kind of just yeah got yeah it. so you were like okay this is like your baby 100% your thing and then they moved on with 100% of their thing yeah exactly Got it. Got yeah. it. Okay. Okay. So you were in the early days of Honeycombers, you know, you were writing all the articles yourself. What did the articles look like at in that early days? So the articles were about 300 words uh, in length. So super short, kind of like two paragraphs. And I remember the images we were using was 128 pixels by 128 pixels. So it was this teeny tiny little square. Um, and they were really just snippets. They were just really tiny snippets of um, cool things that we thought were like the best of Singapore. I remember one of the first articles I wrote was like, here are the five or six places that you can get a real coffee in Singapore. And, you know, this was 14 years ago. So there weren't that many places to actually get an, an Italian style coffee. But yeah, like it was, it was, it was really fun because it it was just kind of uncovering great stuff that was that was happening and new stuff before anyone else and and kind of sharing it got it and how did you get the first readers or how did you get people to start coming into into your website so I spammed all my friends initially (laughs) you know what's really funny is I suffered from imposter syndrome so I never put my name on honeycombers even the first email that said hi, we're here, this is Honeycombers. And it was I was sending it to my friends, but I didn't put who it was from. So it was kind of like, you know, what is this? Who is this? Uh, and I think that was just because I felt like I didn't have the right to be an authority on, you know, the best places to go for coffee or the latest, you know, the latest fashion shop that everyone should check out. 
So, um, yeah, I found my friends, which, you know, you can't do today and totally not recommended to do today. And I also worked with the media rep company that I was working with at Asia City Publishing. So Bernie, who was the the media rep at the time, she set up her own media rep company and she helped me um, really spread the word out with all the Singapore publishers and people who were advertising in, um, yeah, I suppose magazines in Singapore. So I was really, really lucky to have that relationship. And so I had all these potential advertisers on my database from day one, thanks to Bernie um, sending it out to her list. But, um, yeah, it really was very, very organic. I don't know. I don't think it really took off until I first hired someone and I had someone who was a great writer um, take over all the writing. I'm not a natural writer. Um, It's, you know, I, I can write, but... Uh, it does require a fair bit of heavy editing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, as soon as I hired a writer to join the site and we were producing a lot of content, um, then we saw really great shifts in, in in traffic and growth. And actually even taking it a step back, how did you decide on this as the topic? Like how did you decide that you wanted to write about, you know, like more lifestyle, kind of like what to do in Singapore or, you know, places to get coffee in Singapore? How did you pick that as as a topic? Um, I think we uh, we felt my husband and I felt that we were surrounded with um, young people who were expats or or, or you know um, people who hadn't lived there long, but who were whining about Singapore being boring and. Singapore had a bad rep and we didn't find it boring at all. Like we found it was quite cool and there was so much on offer, but it just wasn't delivered in a format that got you excited. And the only real publication that was designed for me um, was uh, like an expat magazine that was so not for me. You know, I was I was 28 and the expat publication was very much targeted at a 45-year-old mum I remember they used to have these features of um, mum standing with her kids next to her Volvo and the article would be like why I chose a Volvo and I was like this is <laughs> who I don't want to be. It was t- the opposite to inspiration. It was like if I turn out to be this person, I'm just going to shoot myself. <laughs> so so that was that was my inspiration to kind of create something that spoke to me, you know, like something I want to pick up and read and not that we were a print magazine, but something that inspired you that that looked cool. I'm going to go and do that. So yeah, I felt like there was a big gap, and and there was a big gap. I mean, Time Out hadn't launched in in Singapore, and then really we were the first digital publication that that kind of gave people um, inspirational things to do in Singapore. And and yeah, so there was definitely that gap there. Um, and yeah, we we just wanted to to feel inspired and have you have so much time as a young person before you have kids you know like you want to be taking on little adventures every weekend to you know find some amazing you know whatever it is curry puff from this hawker or you know like that's that's all the fun stuff that's awesome and you could definitely see the passion there as well like when you talk about this so it's like something that you clearly like feel very strongly about and like I'm sure you had a lot of fun like writing these articles and going off to try different curry puffs around around town I feel like that'd be super super fun 
<laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It was a dream job. It was a dream job. Um, yeah, exactly. Like you get paid to do this. You get paid <laughs> to just try all the best stuff. And yeah. And then we started getting invited to the fashion weeks and invited to brunches and invited to hotel stays. And I was like, this, I just, I nailed it from a, life, a lifestyle perspective. You yeah. Know? Like this is dream job. That, yeah. That's so cool. Um, but I guess like in, in those early moments when you were just starting off, like when you're just writing the few articles um, before you hired anybody, I know you had some advertisers on board or like at least like a, a list of advertisers you could like reach out to to monetize this. But in those early days, did they ask for like numbers or traction or were they quite happy to to, to start working with you? Um, I mean, I think they asked for my database size. Um, I think that was the most important number back then. I don't think anyone was really that focused on um, Google Analytics. I don't even know whether Google Analytics was around. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I remember the people who did advertise early on and I've got I've got some of the original contracts which were typed up in like a Word doc and um, I was selling advertising space for like, uh, you know, $150, $200. One of the very first um, advertisers was um, a Danish brand who um, had a pretty cool product, but they were on my newsletter and they just they just liked the product and they wanted, that's why they advertised. You know, it wasn't done on, really on numbers. They, they just thought this is something cool and this is where I want my brand to be. And I think even today there's advertisers still choose publications that they personally like that you know they want their brand sitting next to so yeah I I still think there's a lot of gut feel today I remember those early contracts and um yeah I I actually became you know really good friends with some of these advertisers because I really appreciated them having that leap of faith and and supporting me so yeah. yeah always need people who believe in you um, and I guess it also probably was a testament to the brand that you were building, right? That these people were like, oh, this is super cool. Like, this is super new. I would love to be associated with, with this brand. Um, so this was actually in like 2010s, was it? Like around then when uh, Honeycomber started? Yeah, 2008 we launched. Um, okay. And yeah, yeah. So kind of in the heydays of blogging, right? That was when blogging was like a a big thing. And so I think it's actually really fascinating because back then, I think blogging, no one ever thought to make money from it. And then it kind of evolved into such a big thing nowadays with like influencers, I mean, bloggers and then influencers and then YouTubers and so on. And so you kind of joined at those early days. Um, But what I think is super fascinating is that back then, bloggers didn't think to reach out to publication or to advertisers, whereas you very quickly, I guess, like went down that path. And I think that that's maybe what made you guys so successful and became like a business early on versus I think someone could have probably taken the blogger route and blogged about, you know, eating in Singapore or restaurants in Singapore. Um, and it may have turned into something quite different. And so I wanted to ask you, why did you, I guess, what made you decide to reach out to advertisers early on? Um, I think because I had an ex- experience of putting together magazines and I understood the commercial realities that people will pay for audience and eyeballs and that you can write editorial content or blogging content, but you can also write advertorial content. And that's that was one thing that we did from the outset was we tried to never sell banner ads which most people were trying to sell. And, you know, the one of the reasons 
blogging never really, back in the day, never really made money is because what you get paid for, um, you know, they call it a CPM or cost per thousand impressions on a banner ad is a tiny amount of money. And so I very quickly early on said, I don't want to sell banner ads. I want to sell in-depth editorial style reviews. And the best thing about that was I'm, I was getting paid to produce the content. And so you could charge more because it's it's actually a creative process. It, it takes more time. So you can charge more of a premium. And also, I believe that people respond better to an advertorial piece of content than a banner ad. You know, how many ads do you see every day and it just kind of doesn't connect with you? But if it's someone giving you their honest review of, of why they like something um, or who it's good for and you trust that person, then, yeah, you know, that's going to have a much bigger impact uh, moving the, the needle for your advertiser. So that was something we we did very early on. But I think without that experience working in a publishing house and I suppose also just, you know, even going back to my time at Krispy Kreme, I, I sat you know, I reported to this CEO who was running this business and I was acutely aware of the numbers. Yeah, I suppose having that visibility into how a business works and, and you know, you kind of, I, I, I say now, um, you know, like if you don't have revenue, it, it's really hard to be motivated to continue on your business. And I think that was a problem with a lot of blogging is, you know, they, they were, they kind of sold this pipe dream and you, you, there were these platforms that would put um, banner ads on your site and even, even Google ads today, like they, for the, for the amount of traffic that you're creating, what you get paid from putting Google ads on your site is, is a pittance um, for how much it costs to, to actually create all those pages and write all that content. Yeah. I just kind of thought we need to directly have conversations with clients and we need to, um, I suppose, value add what we can do. So we're not just selling inches off, uh, off a screen where we're producing a creative content piece for them. Mm, got it. And I guess that was pretty new type of model of business model back then as well. Like people didn't do a lot of these like advertorials. No. And back then people used to sell a, a half page or a quarter page ad, but then have to write about positively about the product in the magazine as well. So the advertisers would say, well, I'm supporting you. Um, I'm buying this ad. So now I want you to mention us editorially as well. So you were kind of like doing more work and getting paid less. So I really felt like turning it on its head by saying, we're not doing any banner ads. We'll just write about you and it'll be in depth. And this is how we'll do it was a really great way to get paid for the for the the harder work that we were doing. And in those in those days, did you shortlist a bunch of brands that you were like, oh, like you guys probably would be relevant or might be interested in being on Honeycombers? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's everything that we would write about anyway. So a lot of a lot of fashion, jewelry, F and B. F and B were never really big ones, but yeah, fashion and jewelry were the were the biggest um, to start with. Uh, were they pretty receptive when you guys you guys reached out? Um, uh, I think a lot of them took a long time. Like I don't think it was a hell yes to start with. I think they all wanted to see case studies. And and it was also one of those things that once you got a couple of big brands, oh, the other category was hotels. Hotels were quite really receptive to begin with. And I suppose because we could write about their experience, whether it's their brunch or their, you know, staycation or 
whatever whatever um, their spa treatments. Yeah, spas was another one. I remember um, the Hyatt was one of our longest clients, longest serving clients, and it was really nice because you really you kind of become really good friends with the with the marketing team. So you're just so grateful for their support, and um, yeah, obviously it worked for them because they're still advertising today. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, and I think that also speaks to the power of relationships as well. And how, like, you know, building those relationships over time, they do, um, you know, yield you results, I guess. Um, back in those early days when you were trying to build up the audience, you know, you, you first started off with sending it to a bunch of friends. How else did you grow? Well, um, look, the biggest thing we did, uh, and it took us, I think, until we were four years in or maybe five years in, is we learnt the art of SEO. And the, the way we learned was actually we hired an editor who came from the UK and she was working, I think, at the Daily Mirror in the UK. So she was pretty top SEO from a big publication that had a lot of money and she came and um, joined us and she basically just really, I suppose, taught us everything we were doing wrong. And, and you know, the big one was we really loved catchy, fun, playful headlines that often didn't say what they were they were more like you know a play on words or alliteration and she basically taught us that we needed to make it really clear what the article was about as opposed to being witty or funny or playful with with the headline so um you know so now there's a very good reason why when you google something like it says the top 10 brunches in singapore like it's very there's nothing creative about that the algorithm loves it so um, she joined the team and, yeah, our traffic just exploded with that knowledge. And, and it surprises me that it just didn't come across our plate. I suppose SEO wasn't really a thing when we started. You know, it was the last 14 years in digital. It, the landscape has completely changed. But I remember in 2009, really clearly that was the year that smartphones launched. So we launched before smartphones um, so, you know, originally everything was designed for desktop. So there's been a lot of learnings and a lot of iterations on what we're doing. But I remember very clearly because I had my first child in 2009 and I remember breastfeeding and having a smartphone and going, this is incredible. I can breastfeed and read the news at the same time. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I remember posting about it going, this is just so convenient. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. That, yeah. That's that's super cool. I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you know that I do have a one-on-one -on -one career coaching program designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and crushing your dream career. Do you feel unfulfilled and unhappy at your job despite landing this amazing, prestigious, high-paying job? Are you great at chasing and acing other people's dreams but have no idea what your own dream and goals are? Do you know deep down that you need to quit your job, but you're not sure what else you would even want to do? If this sounds like you, well, I am sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion. Check out the show notes to today's episode to download the free guide now. All right, back to the episode. I also wanted to ask you a little bit about hiring and whether you ever thought about having a co-founder with you in this journey. Um, I know you started this off kind of, you know, with a team, but then the other two people kind of moved on and they were never really that big of a part of Honeycombers, I, I think, from, from the beginning. 
So once they moved on and you were on this by yourself, did you ever think about bringing on like a partner or a co-founder? Not really. I had a girlfriend who um, was a co-founder with me with the other two partners. So there was um, originally four of us. So the other two who their backgrounds were design and tech and this girlfriend of mine who lived in Singapore, her and I were both writing. It wasn't a super experience in that I saw, I suppose, the potential and I wanted Honeycombers to be massive. You know, when I set up the site from the very beginning, I actually set up the back end to have honeycombers in 13 countries across Southeast Asia. Like I had a really big vision for where it could go. But um my girlfriend who had who was also one of the partners, she um I, I suppose saw it more as a hobby business and wasn't quite as committed or driven to to kind of push it to its limits. So we had an exit there in the first year where I kind of had to have a really tough conversation where I'm like, this is not really working out. Like I I feel like our visions are not aligned. And I said to her, I I kind of feel like I'm not, I'm not enjoying, you know, the, the sense that we're not both working at the same capacity on this project or on this business. So I said, I'm not, I'm not sure how to resolve this, but I, I think either, you should buy the business off me or I should buy the business off you. Like I, I kind of said, one of us should take the business forward. And she said, well, clearly you should take the business and I'll I'll sell you my half. So I bought her out and that was six months into the, to the business. So that was really tough. Yeah, we're not really friends anymore, but um, it was kind of something that I, I just couldn't, I, I don't think I had the experience or maturity to to deal with it in any other way than just say, you know, I, I'm kind of I'm in or out, but this is not going to be something we can do together. So that really tainted my whole experience of working with a friend or working with a co-founder. And I I suppose ever since then I've really enjoyed having it on my own. And you know, my, my husband's very much a really great sounding board, and he's across all the big decisions and now I you know I have the wonderful luxury of having a like a really solid senior team of people around me and two of them have been in the business for five years so I feel like it's just as much their business as it is mine and they treat it like it's their own business and yeah so I feel really grateful that we we are where we are but yeah it was a pretty rocky road and and you know in in all of this this was also me um having a baby so honeycomers was launched in december 2008 and in january 2009 i found out i was pregnant and i remember i had my daughter in august 2009 and two weeks after i had her we signed this ag- agreement for me to buy my girlfriend out of the business so it was really intense like it was really terrible timing like you know two weeks after having a baby no one needs to negotiate kind of (laughs) exit strategy deals and and it was pretty pretty horrific I remember meeting her and um bringing Evie in in the pram down at the time and I brought Evie because you know she was two weeks old and I couldn't really leave her at home I was just breastfeeding her and I remember her saying this really awful thing to me like Oh, you brought the baby to soften me up, have you? And I was just like, oh, my God. oh, oh no, oh no, oh. 
That must not have been easy though. It was terrible. It was terrible. But, you know, um, as with everything, right, it's, it's, uh, I'm grateful for the experience. I could have handled it better, I'm sure. And I think she probably feels the same, but, you know, she's had a successful career um, and she's, you know, now a photographer and, you know, it's it's all a learning curve. But I think what's really hard was, you know, I was 28 and I had no experience with any of this. And yeah, you know, like so green. And I didn't really have a mentor. I was really just talking to my husband who also didn't have an experience in this. So I think it's a very different landscape now. And I think, thank thank God for that, because, it, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of challenges, particularly in those early years. Mm, yeah, but damn, that must have been a very challenging time, time for you. Like having your actual baby, having honeycombers as the second baby, um, and, and going through this like breakup, it must not have been, um, easy. So, so totally understand why, you know, you, you kind of decided to, to go off, go off, um, and, and do it yourself. But you mentioned that you started hiring people and I wanted to get your thoughts on like, how did you go about hiring people, especially, you know, in those, in those early days when you're like, did you have like enough advertising money coming in or you're like, ah, nah, it's time for me to like invest in my business. Like I'm happy to, to make this investment so that we can grow. Um, yeah, really good question. So I think we were making like oh, maybe four or $500 a month. So not a lot of money. But it was money. It was enough for me to say, people are going to pay to be on this platform. So that's great. And I actually, the first person I hired was someone who reached out to me and wrote to me and just said, I love what you're creating. I love your tone of voice. I love the way you're talking and discover, like discovering and spotlighting all these cool things about Singapore. I'd, I'd love to come and be an intern for you. And I was like, well, I, you know, I don't have an office. You know, back then no one was working from home. I don't have an office. I don't I haven't really, you know, but sure. She's like, I'd, I'll just write articles for you from home and here are some topics and, you know, can you pay me? I think it was like $400 a month um, as an internship. And she was a fantastic writer. And the reason she reached out to me was because no one else was doing this, right? So, you know, the, the brand really attracted her. And, um, and she was honeycombers, you know, she was as much honeycombers as what I was it maybe even more. So she was maybe five or eight years younger than me. Like she was quite young and she was very cool. She loved all the cool stuff of Singapore. So she could write about stuff really easily and naturally. And she was awesome, a great writer. So she interned for me for, I think three or four months. And then one day she said to me, Look, my parents want me to get a real job that pays CPF, uh, so I'm going to have to, you know, stop writing for you. And I was like, no, you can't do that. And I remember my husband going, well, why don't you just hire her? Because also once she started writing content, then I was able to focus more on sales. So I, I had her doing all the editorial content, which was probably three or four articles a week. It wasn't, you know, um, we weren't producing a huge amount of content back then. Um, but then I had all of my time to be able to focus on on revenue generation activities. So reaching out to people, doing meetings and, 
yeah, pitching honeycombers to advertisers. So I was instantly able to, you know, 100% um, increase the amount of clients we were having come on because I was out there pitching to them. So, yeah, so then I hired her as my first full-time employee and she soon became the editor of Honeycombers Singapore. And um, then I, you know, I, uh, I said to her, I really needed help on the advertising sales. It was just a lot. And I was, you know, still kind of a, a new mum at that stage. And she said, oh, I've got this best friend who works in sales. So I hired her best friend. And yeah, there was three of us for probably a year and a half or two years. And it worked really well. They, they, yeah, because they were friends, they really enjoyed working together and there was never any, you know, misalignment or miscommunication. They were, yeah, in each other's pockets. And yeah, we, we just grew really organically and naturally. And it was um, a very easy kind of, I suppose, first couple of years. That's amazing. I feel like after after the bad breakup, you deserved a uh, nice, peaceful period of, <laughs> of time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Working relationships with people. And you guys had like yeah. clear areas of focus. So it was just very much like additive to the team and able to like push it, push it forward quite quickly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think then Honeycombers, you know, started growing. Actually, before before we even talk about that, I wanted to ask, because you said that you also had kids during this period of time. So how did you balance, you know, motherhood, being a new mom and building Honeycombers at the same time? Yeah, well, I mean, I had a very good helper. Um, shout out to Sylvia, who was our family's helper for eight years. And so, she, you know, she really helped take the pressure off. But I do think having your own business is actually kind of a nice way to be able to continue to work when you're having kids. I mean, all the meetings were done at my house and my team were totally fine if I would breastfeed in a meeting. Um, so, yeah, it, it kind of worked okay. But, you know, I look back on those really high growth years where I had had three babies and the business was just exponentially growing rapidly and it was all a bit of a blur like you know it was all happening pretty fast and pretty busy and yeah it just it yeah it kind of was uh all a bit of a blur probably the tiredness <laughs> makes it all a bit of a blur barely <laughs> um, sleeping yeah i think the most challenging piece was when i had darcy who um was my third child and at that stage i think i had about 16 employees and i had an office in town in telokaya and I didn't have any support in the admin side of the business. So I didn't have anyone in finance or HR. So I was managing the books and um, also processing payroll, which are two things I should never be allowed to touch, to be honest, because I'm such a big picture person. And, you know, like every month someone would get come to me saying, you've either paid me too little or you've paid me too much. You know, like I was not definitely not working in my zone of genius, but um, I remember driving in after Darcy was born into the office and a friend from Australia rang to congratulate me on having a baby and she's like what are you doing and I'm like I'm just driving into the office and Darcy was like I think 10 days or two weeks old and she's like what are you doing that for and I was just so tired and emotional and I, I probably agreed with her that it was stupid that I was doing it 
But um, yeah, I just started crying and I had to hang up on her because I couldn't talk to her. So I just rudely hung up and pulled the car over and had a big cry on the side of the road <laughs> because I was just so tired and I agreed with her totally. Like, what was I doing? But you now I rang my husband and said, I'm just hung up with my friend <laughs> and, and I'm crying on the side of the road. And He's like, just come home. And I'm like, I, I can't because I've got to process payroll. And if I don't process payroll, 16 people don't get paid this month. So I've got to go in and I've got to do these numbers. And even though I've got this young baby and I've only slept, you know, two hours last night, it's got to be done. So yeah, it, it was um, highs and lows. Uh, and I, you know, I'm grateful for both the highs and the lows now, you know, like the highs are only high because of the lows. So I'm I'm really happy to have such a vivid memory of how tough it is running a business and having babies and having leaky boobs and, you know, all those things at the same time. But we got there. And, we got and, there. And did you feel like you had balance or is that really honestly like <laughs> really like no way? <laughs> like we just survived with like barely survived. <laughs> I think there was no balance once Darcy arrived. There was no balance. But, uh, you know, like everything changes all the time, right? So I'm at that point in time, one of my employees had told me that her husband was the general manager of a publishing house. And I said to her, well, if he ever needs a job, you let me know. And and I just put that out there. And, and then literally three months later, she said, oh, yep. Yeah, my husband loved to talk to you if you if you're still serious about that um, senior role, and so I hired this guy to run my business, and I stepped out of my business for, um, gosh, must have been four years, and I just handed the reins over to him to run the business, and that enabled me to move back to Australia and have more time with my kids, and yeah, and that was a, just a really good break from the craziness of running a business and having three young children. You know, that was not without challenges, but I really appreciate the fact that I had found someone who had great experience running a publishing business and was willing to kind of step in and and run honeycombers for me. So that was that was good. And what was that kind of a deliberate decision? Like you were on the lookout for someone at that point, or it was more just um, yeah, actually, you know, happy to have this conversation and let's see where this goes. Very much the latter. I was very much like I hadn't advertised, I hadn't really thought about the role. And, yeah, I remember I had a, a, an interview with him that went for two hours and he was just really interested in in, in the role and, you know, running a, a company. And, uh, yeah, I was really interested in his experience and what he'd done before and what he could bring to the company. And, the company definitely matured while he was at the helm because he was able to just bring in a lot of systems and processes that was that he had seen a big bigger publishing house do and how how it was managed and yeah so it really matured the business and and just gave me a really nice break away from just the the crazy you know juggling act that I had had before he joined the company so what period of time was, was this Oh, so um, uh, that's a very good question. So I moved out to Australia, it's about four and a half years ago. So this would be about seven years ago. 
ah, there you go. My my Darcy is about to turn eight. So um, yeah, that, okay. that's it. Seven years ago. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So like shortly after you had your third kid. Yeah. Wow. The t- timing really is amazing. <laughs> yes. So you yes, got to really spend some is. time yeah, yeah, with, with your, with your kids. So I guess I know that honeycombers also exist, like not just in Singapore, but in Hong Kong, Bali, and you guys have like the kids version as well. How soon did these launch and how did you decide to expand into these other areas? Yeah. Uh, Honey Kids launched uh, as the first one. Oh no, I lie. We actually launched Honeycombers Jakarta and Honeycombers Bali. We've since down, uh, closed down Honeycombers Jakarta. And that was just because a friend of mine moved to Bali and said, you know, I'd love to do Honeycombers Bali with you. And we did it as a bit of a collaboration initially. And what happened with Bali was I just found a, a really great employee who treated the business like her own. And yeah, it, it, that's always been a really small but very simple and easy business, Honeycombers Bali. Honey, uh, Honey Kids, we created, I think because... We just saw a lot of kids' content and a lot of kids' advertisers. And we I remember we took it out to market and we sold $100,000 in advertising on this platform before we launched. So there was a real hunger for that audience. And then Honeycombers Hong Kong, we launched five years ago. And we launched Hong Kong because at the time, I suppose, looking at how how to grow your business in Singapore. We looked at lots of different avenues, but we felt like launching it into different markets was a really sound growth strategy. But um, yeah, they've all been very different experiences and of different varying levels of success. So, you know, Hong Kong took uh, a good three or four years to really get traction and then we had the riots and then we had COVID. So it's it's um, been a really challenging uh, part of the business. And also, I suppose now we have the, the mass exodus of, of English-speaking and expats from Hong Kong. So we're still kind of waiting to see what's going to happen there. Yeah, Honey Kids of all of the, the new business units has kind of been the most successful and pretty much brings in similar revenues to, to Honeycomb in Singapore. Mm, um, so yeah. So you kind of tested mm. that out like with some advertisers first before you decided to launch Honey Kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we went and sold it before we built it, which um, was something that I think I learned from Tim Ferriss used to, I think he had it in his book for our work week, that if you want to create a new business, like create a landing page and see if you can sell it before you you build it. Yeah. Um, really nice way to test demand. Yeah, that's really cool. So it was more just an idea like, hey, we're like launching something in the kids space. Would you guys be interested in advertising? And they, they were like, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. And I guess I wanted to ask, like, how, why did you decide to go into kids at that point where it was it like you felt like you kind of got the hang of honeycombers by itself and it was kind of hitting a plateau and you guys were looking for growth? Was that why you guys like tapped into the kids market? Yeah. And I think also um, we kind of feel like if you don't have kids, you don't want to read content about kids. So um, to keep honeycombers cool, We'd, and to prevent us being that publication where you are seeing features that you're like, this is totally uninspiring, <laughs> we wanted to kind of move the kids' content to a, a separate platform. And I also, I suppose, you know, at that point knew that life as a parent 
<laughs> changes everything for what you want from restaurants to what's your priorities. You know, like um, one of our uh, stories that did really well was cafes that open early, you know, like my kid was always up at six or seven and I just wanted to get out and go to a coffee shop and get a coffee. But, um, you know, at that time there was nothing that really opened that early. And I remember Kith Cafe, I don't, some of your listeners might remember Kith Cafe down at um, on uh, Robinson Key was my early coffee morning joint. And when I found it, I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> so, yeah, I think current parent content is, is, you know, quite different to non-parent content. So, yeah. I guess it also grew along with your own personal journey with, you know, being a mom and, and you know, wanting a different type of content as well. Totally. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you recently, or I guess actually throughout Honeycombers, you started a few other businesses I saw. <laughs> and so, and so I wanted to, to, to hear what, like how, how did those kind of come about? Yeah. So, um, I, I moved to Australia and I, you know, kind of got more involved in Honeycombers through COVID. So my general manager for Honeycombers resigned, I think, in 2020, in the latter part of the year. And, and COVID was really tricky because all our advertising revenue just dropped. I, I mean, it dropped 80% from one month to the next because everyone, even, even though we'd signed all these advertisers, everyone just kind of rang up and said, uh, we just want to put it on hold. Understandably, right? But, yeah, so it was pretty hair-raising kind of time to be a business owner and during that time I I found mentorship with coaches but also through community groups in Australia and I also thought maybe it would be make sense to diversify my revenue streams and have different revenue models that would kind of I suppose COVID proof my my business because at the moment all our advertisers require people to get out and about and buy or experience whether it's travel or shopping or restaurants it's all dependent on people being able to go and spend money right so I created a business called Make It Media which was uh, or it still is uh, it's an eight-week kind of I suppose uh, intensive learning program for anyone who wants to create a media business and I run two seasons of that um, course. Basically, I teach everything I've learned over the last 14 years from how to grow your audience to also how to, how to, how to grow revenue or how to you know create revenue channels to branding, to content, uh, to small business finance. And so I, I, I've got that, which is a, a very small little kind of passion project of mine. But once I did that, I actually kind of discovered that I really enjoyed helping people it was really fulfilling and I wanted to see how I could create something that helped business owners but also dovetailed into um, honeycombers more than what Make It Media um, does. So um, January this year we created Launchpad which is an entrepreneurial membership or ecosystem where people pay between $40 and $90 a month depending on what kind of membership they want and we basically give them education through masterclasses, but mentorship and more importantly, community. So being able to meet other entrepreneurs and, and throw ideas around and, and, you know, I suppose surround yourselves with people that are, are going through the same journey that you are. 
And that really stems from my personal experience of not having that and um, and really um, missing that. But then when I got to Australia, I saw this trend of these digital community groups that just provided so much value. And I thought this is something I could bring to Asia and I could dovetail it with Honeycombers. So if you buy the $90 membership, you get an article on Honeycombers. So it enables entrepreneurs and small business owners to have access to media that is usually beyond their budget. So an, an article on Honeycombers is about $5,000. You know, we're giving that kind of value for $950. So it, it's a really nice win-win. And yeah, I suppose it's always bothered me that Honeycombers hasn't had a an opportunity to support small business, which is really, you know, dear to me and and what I am, you know, a small business owner. So it's um it's not if it feels so right and it's um yeah immensely satisfying to to be able to provide, yeah, I suppose this really safe space and and this really kind community that its whole mission is to to lift others up and help entrepreneurs succeed so it's it's another dream job like I I'm kind of you know can't believe we haven't done it earlier it's it's so rewarding yeah last week I had five members reach out to me individually just to say thank you that the community has helped them so much and I got three on Saturday morning and I was just like oh my God, you know, like I'm lying in bed on Saturday morning. I'm getting teary saying this, but I had just these three emails come in just saying, Chris, thank you so much for what you've created. And and I, I suppose because I've had those dark days, I've had those days where you're just like, I'm so over this and I can't see the way through and I, I don't know which way is up and the stress levels are off the charts. And, you know, the only thing that you can do to keep sane is some deep breathing and you know try and calm yourself but the the enormous stress that comes from running your own business I can so relate to it's so raw and still there and you know to to be able to help alleviate that from other entrepreneurs is just the most um wonderful gift so yeah it's um it's been a real gem real highlight for me that that's amazing. And it's amazing that it kind of came from COVID as well. Like when it was probably like moments of low for, for you and your business, you know, going through COVID, um, that you birthed this, this new thing that is, you know, giving you so much joy and helping everybody, um, in, in the community as well. I mean, honestly, when I first heard about Launchpad, I was like, this is amazing. Like, I'm surprised that there isn't something like this sooner, um, that is out there to, to, to help other entrepreneurs in, in this journey. Um, so, so that's, that's truly so great. Um, yeah. yeah. So I guess, um, what's next for you? Like, I know we've like talked oh. about like, Launchpad is like, you know, already <laughs> like, it, it's kind of like the new baby, like the new thing that you've got going on. Is there anything else that you're kind of thinking about in, 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 in the next couple of years? No, I think I, I'm, I think I'm pretty challenged right now with my ambitions with Launchpad. So I've got very clear goals with Launchpad and, and the scope is is massive for Launchpad. So, you know, initially we've launched it as a Singapore and Hong Kong network, but we've got, so we've got 155 members today and five of them are from Australia. So, you know, all of a sudden we've got to rewire it and make it 
a global membership that's more inclusive. So there's a there's a lot to be done at Launchpad, and um, yeah, I think I think my cup's pretty full. I I don't have any um, big ideas that I'm itching to do. It's um it's pretty busy. I think there's some there's you know a couple of things in the local community where I'm based in in Australia that I'm keen to get involved in, but. Um, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I think my biggest struggle is to maintain a healthy work-life balance and, you know, I, I suppose I try and do that by booking lots of holidays so I'm forced to have time with my family. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I, I don't have any other big surprises coming up. I will be, yeah, I'm, I'm just, yeah, I, I think pretty committed and, yeah, committed and, um, yeah, driven with, with Launchpad and Honeycomb, it's like this, it's between the two of them. Diary is pretty hectic. <laughs> <laughs> and with Launchpad, that actually leads me to the question of around mentorship. Did you have mm. any mentors along your journey? Look, there was a, a serious lack in mentors in my journey, um, and that's one of my uh, one of my inspirations for creating Launchpad. I don't think mentors are very hard to I think they are very hard to find like it's hard to reach out to someone so I used to ask my friend's husbands who I knew were pretty successful in a commercial world and and a lot of them were fantastic I used to you know duck over on a weekend and and say here's what I'm thinking you know what what do you think about xyz and they would help me but it was it wasn't on a regular basis and there was very much a big void there and you know like my my dad's a bit of an inspiration but he doesn't really understand digital media at all um <laughs> so yeah it, there was there's a really it, it was hard to find a mentor now i have a girlfriend that i I actually met through a local um, business networking group here in Australia and we go and do a walk um, once a week together. And, um, yeah, she runs a business in PR training and her and I spend a, a lot of time talking about each other's businesses and that's wonderful way for me to be challenged and for also for me to bounce ideas off, off someone who understands the industry. But, yes, I definitely think they're... There needs to be more mentorship and I suppose kindness uh, with time and knowledge. And when you meet people who do have that yearn to give back, and, and there's a lot of them at Launchpad. And so, you know, some of the senior entrepreneurs that join Launchpad are only there to just give back because it gives them so much joy. Yeah, they they're they're wonderful people that just know how hard it is and just want to give people the shortcuts that they wish they were given. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I completely agree. I do think that mentorship is hard to come by. Um, and sometimes like the, the chemistry needs to be there and they also kind of need to know a little bit about your business, even even though you know they, they could potentially be a great mentor. If they don't really know how to give you advice, it's also a bit challenging. So for sure, I'm so excited to see how Launchpad um, is tackling this problem because I, I definitely feel it <laughs> myself as well. Did you ever think about like advisors to the business? Because I know that that's how some people approach mentorship when it comes to uh, running their own business. Yes. And, and I do have someone at the minute who I um, check in with every um, four to eight weeks who is a really smart um, media entrepreneur who you know is my another mentor of mine but 
yes, I wish I had put together a board of advisors. I think that would have been smart. But again, I don't think I had access to even knowing how to do it or what would that look like and, you know, what would be the remuneration structure. And also, I suppose, like, people that were older than me who had done media or publishing, did they actually understand digital? Like, you know, I I think there's a bit of a people who are 10 years older than me are are definitely not digital natives. Um, So I I still, you know, it's very niche to understand, you know, CPMs and uh, what digital media is all about, Uh, you know, influencers and Instagram and social media like I just don't think my my seniors would have been able to advise much or I wouldn't have known where to find them mm-hmm. but um yeah yeah I definitely actually think that's a really good question and I think it could be a really good masterclass for Launchpad like how to find and select um advisors for your business what what you can expect of them and how would you go about doing that but yeah. um yeah that'd be a great class I'd love to sign up <laughs> <laughs> all right all right I'll put it on the list <laughs> yeah writing it down right now board of advisors um, I love it yeah and kind of just to to wrap up two more questions for you one is what would you say is your trait or characteristic that made you so successful I think like it's truly amazing what you've built with honeycombers um, and it's been a pretty lasting business, which I think is also another um, true testament to what you've been able to build. It's been able to really stick around. It's not like something that kind of dies off in a couple of years. So what would you say is kind of that key trait or key thing that you did that kind of made this all so successful? Oh, it's a really good question. I think uh, the first one is just being wildly optimistic and wildly positive always looking for the bright side or always thinking big is one thing and I think I think potentially having a really good commercial understanding you know I I think understanding when or what to ask for you know and so I, I suppose that what I mean by that is having the confidence to put a proposal out there that you think like no one's going to buy $30,000 worth of advertising and boom, someone says, great, you're on the money. You know, like, so just being wildly positive with what you're doing. And then I think also being humble enough to ask for help or be really comfortable to say, I don't know. Um, and I, I've got a bit of a strength of not not having to have all the answers. And I have a lot of trust in people around me. So I trust my team and I'm really happy to say I I don't I don't know I'll have to get some help on that. So, you know, I I suppose I feel like that's a bit of a female superpower um uh that we can put a, put our hand up and say I'm I'm not sure what I should be doing here. I'm going to ask for help. But yeah, I suppose that's the two big ones. I also think if you've got um the right product at the right time, and you're listening to your audience or to your customers and you evolve with that that feedback, like constantly be evolving and listening um, and and curious, I suppose. But you you attract your clients as opposed to, you know, you really do attract them to you because you're creating something um, that has strong brand and has strong 
purpose and strong presence. So I think believing in that, I suppose, that that purpose and that why in your business is a really powerful thing. And you can you can bring great people and 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 great clients to you. Amazing. I I, I love that. And I mean, I feel like you already gave so much advice, but any last parting words of advice or just thoughts for, especially for people who are considering, you know, leaving behind a corporate job to, you know, build their own business? Wow. Okay. I have so much. I don't know what to say. We've we've got all the time for you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, I do think the entrepreneurial roller coaster is not for everyone. So I think you have to be brave and I think you have to be resilient. So if you're not particularly brave or resilient, um, then you know, if I have a have a crack, but by all means, you know, don't burn all your bridges. And I often think it's better to start a side hustle, you know, like test the market before you leave the job behind to make sure that you've got great feedback from customers and from you know that people want what you're creating and that there is demand there Uh, I think one thing I um, I've always really enjoyed doing is really putting things out there before you're ready don't don't wait until it's all perfect Uh, done is better than perfect is one of the expressions I like so if you're a perfectionist again entrepreneurial journey might not be for you you have to be really happy with 80% because action's really important um uh because if you if you wait till it's perfect you might miss that window and i do think timing is important um i think that's part of why honeycombers is successful is we did it before anyone else uh and so that first mover advantage you know like 80% of our traffic comes from seo and that's people going to google and wanting some advice and we are there in the top you know usually the top five articles you can click on and then people click on us because they know they've been there before and they know they can trust the content they know it's going to be a clean site experience and it's going to be up to date so I definitely think um you know timing is important uh and um yeah what else would I say join launchpad (laughs) definitely (laughs) (laughs) but no honestly surround yourself with um great people who will support you and um, other entrepreneurs really do love helping other entrepreneurs. So find someone. Um, and if you don't, if you don't have anyone, definitely look us up at Launchpad and come and join a masterclass. Um, you can come and check us out before you. This doesn't need to get into a sales pitch, but it really has. Um, but yes, come find a community, whether it's Launchpad or another community. But it is everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's why you've built it, right? You want to be able to help people in in this process. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, it was so lovely talking to you today, Chris. And thank you so much for being so open and sharing so much with us today. I think I personally learned so much uh, from the process of how you've built Honeycomers and the resilience that you've had throughout this whole entire journey. So, yeah, cool. Thanks, Jen. It's been um, an absolute pleasure. So thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. And there you have it, my conversation with Chris. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, how do you figure out what business to start? Well, start by paying attention to the gaps or the problems that you are currently facing. And keep an eye out for what's happening around the world. For example, 
Chris thought of starting Honeycomers because she saw the success of a daily lifestyle recommendation email in the U.S. and found that this was missing in the Singapore market. Similarly, for Launchpad, she saw the value of the masterminds and support she got as an entrepreneur in Australia, but noticed a gap in Singapore. Number two, advice on pivoting in your career. Don't be afraid to try something just because you don't have the relevant prior experience. Don't underestimate skills like being able to figure things out and determination and how far these skills can take you. Number three, don't wait until everything is perfect to start. If you wait for perfection, you are going to miss the window of opportunity. Be happy with 80% because action is actually way more important than perfection. Number four, learn to be wildly optimistic and positive. Have confidence in yourself. For example, you might think that no one would ever buy $30,000 worth of advertising on your website, but Chris tried it and actually landed the deal. If you never try, you will never know. And lastly, on having a family while running a business, Chris's advice is to know your limitations and don't be shy about asking for help. It truly takes a village. Be humble enough to admit that you don't know and ask for help. This applies to your business as well. Trust your team and the people around you. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control Alt Career. Check back in two weeks for a slightly different format to the podcast. I'm launching a couple of episodes where instead of interviewing guests, I'll be turning the mic onto myself and sharing some more personal and how-to content on pivoting your career. And if you like today's episode, do share it with two friends who maybe aren't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. And of course, if you're interested in getting some career coaching, feel free to reach out to me and follow me on Instagram at Jennifer for more information. And of course, if you're interested in getting some career coaching, feel free to reach out to me or follow me on Instagram at Jennifer underscore for more information. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you guys back here in two weeks. Thank you.